Welcome back to the 95th episode of Supreme Myths as we inch towards the 100th. I am very excited today to meet someone in person who I've never met in person, but who I have respected for a very, very long time uh, through his writings and through social media. Uh, Chris Geidner, um, I, he came to my attention when he was the Supreme Court reporter for BuzzFeed, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, and he did a great job there. Um, he's been covering the court for a long time. I think he is one of our best. Uh, Supreme Court reporters and commentators, and there might be a difference in those two things, and we'll talk about that as well. He's a graduate of Ohio State Law School, where he was the editor-in-chief of the Ohio State Law Journal. He now has a very good newsletter, which I recommend to everybody, called, I love the name too, Law Dork. Um, I've always considered myself a con law dork, so we're, <laughs> yeah. we're kindred spirits. Chris, thank you so much for being here. No, thanks a lot. So glad to be able to be here and to, to talk with you. I, I really respect your work, and I have for a long time. It's been it's been at least, I don't know, forever. Anyway, let's begin with this. Um, before we talk about covering the court, why did you become a journalist? How did that decision get made, and how did you start? Yeah, um, <laughs> who knows? No. Um, <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know. Several <laughs> wrong decisions. No. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I, I had actually, I had, I've basically ping ponged back and forth between, uh, DC and Ohio throughout my life. I was actually born here. Uh, I was born at Bethesda Naval Hospital. Um, uh, my dad was in the Navy and, uh, just a um, quick, sorry, Chris, oh, just a quick thing. I hate to interrupt. I used to live right across from there in Bethesda. <laughs> oh, really? The Groves, yeah. or right near no, the Groves, no, apartments. Yeah. Well, we uh, we we had moved quickly back to Ohio, where my dad was from, um, and so I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio, um, and then came back here to D.C. for undergrad at American, um, which was a, a weird moment for my mother as we were driving in off the Beltway to American up there. You literally have to pass by Bethesda Naval yes. Yes. <laughs> in order to get to American's campus, and yeah. she was like, "Oh my." You, you were, <laughs> of course. Then my mother, like me, very emotional. She starts crying as we're driving. She's like, "You were born there, I'm you up to college." Um, and then I, I went yours back is the first family. birth story in '95 Supreme Myths. That's good. <laughs> well, there we go. Um, I I went back to Ohio. I worked on some campaigns. I uh, but then actually I worked on one campaign and we lost. Uh, the primary. And before I went to another campaign, I was talking with some other candidates and uh, the candidate's wife was like, politics is awful. You don't <laughs> want to go to another campaign. Go work at my old newspaper. Oh, wow. Uh, and so I went to the Tribune Chronicle in Warren, Ohio and worked there for two years before law school. And um, I worked at the newspaper for two really wild years. Um, I worked there from 2000 to 2002. Um, so I worked there for Bush v. Gore, uh, for the, the 2000 election uh, moment. Um, I worked Tragedy, there. I call it tragedy, but go ahead. Yeah, well, I <laughs> then worked there um, for another tragedy for September 11th. Yeah. Um, I was at the paper. I worked there during redistricting. Um, and so I had some of, I was a copy editor, but I ended up doing some special project reporting and redistricting was one of the, the special project reports I did. Um, and then I ended up being uh, the editorial writer for my last six months once they knew I was going to be leaving them to go to law school. Um, and so I had like six months of editorial writing at the end there um, as uh, Representative James Traficant, the longtime yes. Youngstown area rep, was uh, tried for corruption for a second time. Um, and this time he lost. Um and then I went to law school. Um, now why so, law school, Chris? Why law school? Um, I had always wanted to go to law school. I was really uh, from from middle school on was obsessed with with presidents and uh, the law, the Civil War, uh, and it was sort of a, a question of when, not if. Um, 
And so I went to law school in 2002. And uh, after the first year of law school was um, <laughs> was a little nervous about what law school was going to do to my writing ability. Yes. And, <laughs> um, and, and sort of was like, had this idea in my mind that I'd spent all this time learning how to write well, and I was going to ruin it all in law school. <laughs> and um, one of my friends, uh, a year, I think a year ahead of me in law school, um, was like, well, you should, you should just start one of those blogs that people are doing. And so um, in June 2003, I started Law Dork. Wow. Um, that is early. That is an early, blog. early blogger right there. Yes. No, I had, at that point, I was basically, um, had been paying attention to Talking Points Memo from Josh Marshall yep. um, and um, whatever version of a blog. I think it was the Daily Dish at that point that Andrew Sullivan had. Um, and so, yeah, I, I started blogging and blog was in that sort of first generation of, of law school bloggers. Um, when it was sort of an advantage, it was a small enough group of us that the law professors who were blogging still had to pay attention <laughs> to the law students who were like taking it seriously because there just wasn't a critical mass otherwise. And so, I like got to know very early on people uh, like Eugene Volek and Oren Kerr. Um, both of whom have been on, both both of whom have been on this podcast. I want to say, <laughs> um, obviously Howard Bashman. Yeah. Um, and uh, how about how about David Latt? Because he was he blogging about David. Yeah. Well, da yeah, David was still um, not. Uh, he he was doing uh, Article Three Groupie. Right. Uh, when I was in law school, um, and so was was hidden was incognito. It was before he had uh, done his. Uh, before Posner added him. <laughs> yeah, before before he got his New Yorker uh, profile. Yes. Um, um, and yeah, and then I, I started after I graduated from law school. I So I blogged throughout law school when I started uh, at a law firm after law school. Um, they were, I was sort of, it was, it was what, 2005 when I graduated and I was, I was out and gay and I was a blogger. So I was like several of the liberal <laughs> I was like, I was the like, you press some buttons. Law journal. So, like, they law firms wanted me, but I was also like something that law firms didn't quite know what to do with. <laughs> um, and I mean, that hasn't changed over time. Yes. Nobody has ever known. Yeah. Um, and, but they, they love, so I mean, the firm that I went to, Porter Wright in Columbus, uh, they, they loved my blogging. Um, I did things with sort of, Ohio Bar Association, Columbus Bar about blogging, about and about like blogging responsibly, about like this can be about real things. And right. um, and I was doing that right as as marriage was starting. Right. Um, so that was because that was that was right after Lawrence. I started the blog because of Lawrence, basically. Right. Um and that's 2003. Uh, Lawrence is 2003. 2003. Yeah. 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 So the end of my first year of law school. Um, when I started, it was about Lawrence. Um, and you might remember also Gruder, yes. um, was that year. So I remember, I'm going to forget it again, July 1st, but yeah. I remember now yeah. 30, 30 years later, we're back at Gruder. But so I, I stopped blogging for a while when I went and worked for, uh, Ohio state AG's office for two years, um, because obviously I couldn't, um, but as soon as I left the AG's office uh, in 2000, end of 2008, um, like a month later, I started the blog again. Um, and that was sort of what I referred to as Law Dork 2.0 when I launched it. <laughs> um, and things had changed um, because that was, I was told right away when I started again that I needed to join Twitter. Um, <laughs> where, where you and, and I first met, by the way. Yeah. yeah. And so that was, I started uh, a Twitter account and I was blogging. I was still in Columbus. Um, but then at the, the end of 2009, I moved back to DC 
um, and started doing freelance for Metro Weekly, the LGBT magazine, uh, which became my first time post-law school full-time journalism job. Right. Um, and I was at uh, Metro Weekly throughout uh, the end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell and the beginning of the end of DOMA. And then uh, in 2012, uh, Ben Smith was expanding BuzzFeed and opening a DC bureau. And um, I was one of the along with <laughs> BuzzFeed had in one of its first of many sort of unusual things when we launched uh, the the DC Bureau, it was a bureau chief and an LGBT reporter. <laughs> um, and so it was John Stanton and me uh, that, that first when we announced the DC Bureau and I was at uh, BuzzFeed then for the next basically seven years. Yeah. So, so I have a question. Um, so I got to know you through your work covering the court in general, but mostly on LGBTQ issues and God knows Obamacare, right. <laughs> where, where you and I spent many hours arguing with people like Jonathan Adler and others. Um, why? But so I, I don't even know if, this is, when I'm about, if, if the premise is false, tell me. But I, I <laughs> sense you write a lot about constitutional law, some obviously about administrative law, but less about other important areas of Supreme Court decision making, like for example, statutory interpretation. I know you dabble in, but but it seems like con law is your main focus. Is that intentional? Is um, that? I don't. I don't know. Okay. I I, I think that um, I mean certainly some of the issues that I um, th that I was long time connected to. Um, Sorry, this just did a weird. That's okay. Give me a, a warning notice. Okay. Um, I I mean I I I don't know. I I think I do a. I, I think that that uh, Ruth Kolker, my old uh, legislation professor, would disagree with okay, you. Okay, fair uh, enough. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, that, that there have been statutory uh, interpretation, but I do think. I mean, I think obviously the the focus uh on on marriage when i did it but i mean it, i think that there was a lot of statutory interpretation when it came to title 7 yep. um and the eoc stuff surrounding um Bostock. the the definition of sex under title 7 um and then i think there have been some criminal law things i think in terms of what comes up to the Supreme Court, um, there's been a lot that I've focused on. I sort of, by the time I had moved back to DC, I had missed the the Booker fan fan moment. Um, I had been in Columbus researching for Doug Berman um, as a, a law student during that period. Right. Um, but most of Doug uh, is, the, Doug, I, is Doug the, he's the Crim Pro guy at Ohio State. Yeah. yeah, Doug and I met yeah. at um. Believe it or not, we met at a Renaissance conference once and had a great time. Oh together. yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, Doug, Doug, Doug is a great guy. We had a good time. Um, and so um, I mean, I think that a lot of the um, a lot of the issues where the court was moving uh with big steps uh that people were interested in were the uh, constitutional issues. Um, but I certainly think as we got into, um, I mean, I was, I think a lot of my uh, statutory interpretation stuff was more when I was covering Congress more. Yeah. Um, and was more the, the actual, like, what are the ins and outs of, the don't ask, don't tell repeal bill. Right. What what's going on with? Um, I mean, for example, last year uh, when when we had the Respect for Marriage Act, I think there were a lot of questions about um, how how that was going. What the the exemptions and caveats that were written into that? How extensive right. were they? Were they undermining the bill? Were they providing too much religious protection? Um, I definitely... The answer to that's uh, yes, by the way. Go ahead. 
Yeah. Well, and and they, there were some sort of both both sides on that. Yeah. That um, there were some people um, who who were sort of like, "This is too much, and we just shouldn't bother with this bill." Um, and I I think in light of how extreme the the Supreme Court has gotten, I think the bottom line of being able to get a bill passed was was important. Um, both as a way of letting the court know that this was something that for how horrible Congress is at passing laws, <laughs> this was actually a decision that you could get a majority right. <laughs> uh, of, of Congress and even a, a 60 vote not mem- threshold in the Senate uh, to sort of say, no, you did the right thing here. Don't don't mess right. with Obergefell. Right. Um, I think that that was important. And then on the, the the bad end of it, in case the court goes even more extreme um, to 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 protect the the undergirding of that ruling in a way that uh, Congress was never able to do with Roe. Okay. Um, I want to talk about covering the court, Chris, if that's okay. Um, and, I, and I want to do it. Uh, I, I, want, I want to give you a hypothetical this way. Now, it's not hypothetical, but um, so um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to say it. So I, I'm, I'm friends with Linda Greenhouse, and I think, um, and I've known her for a long time. And for a long time, she was the Supreme Court reporter for the New York Times. And um, the, the job that Adam Liptak currently has, um, they've both done this podcast. I like both of them a lot. When Linda was reporting, when she was the reporter for the court, meaning what did the court decide today? What are its implications? What are its consequences? Who voted for what, et cetera? She had one style. As a columnist, which she has been now for years, she's much more critical. Frankly, I think more honest isn't the word I really want, but transparent maybe is the word I want. Um, and um, a friend of mine who's really smart, not a lawyer, but 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 knows as much as most lawyers about constitutional law, once said to me, why couldn't Linda bring that perspective when she was actually covering the court? Which she really didn't do. Uh, And Adam, I think, is very fair. I think Adam's a wildly fair journalist. And very rarely does he editorialize. Um, and And I take it that your role, and I compare you to Dolly Lithwick, what, she's no longer covering the court in that way, but she used to for many years. Um, your role was different, right, at BuzzFeed? Your role was to tell the public what the court said, but not leave it at that. Is that a fair statement? Um, I, I mean, I think telling people what the court said is just one part of yeah. reporting on the court responsibly. Okay. Um, I, I think that 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 only tells you a part of the story. I mean, th- think about it. If I think the simplest way to think about it and that, that I've written some on and some others are now talking more about is, is that, that we would never accept that um, as coverage of Congress. Right. If, if congressional reporters simply reported on what was said on the floor <laughs> and then what was, and then did another report six months later of this is what bill was passed. Right. Would, would anybody consider that to be acceptable? That's a great point. Chris. Congress. The great point. No, it would be, it would be absolute malpractice. People would say you're, 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 you're not caring about what, uh, is going on behind the scenes. You're not caring about what deals are being made. You're not caring about what influence these these members of the House are facing. You're not uh, even looking at the world around them and how they're being influenced by what's going on outside of of uh, of Congress. Like it, it would just it would be unfathomable. So, um, so Chris, hold on, hold on, hold, hold, hold on. So, so, for the longest time right. for the Supreme Court. So those are great, great That a, a, a case has been filed or granted. You cover that arguments happen. 
every once in a while in a huge case, you might have a story about the briefs, about uh, a big amicus brief or something. Uh, and then you have a decision about the ruling, uh, uh, an article about the ruling. And that that was that that is failing readers. And it, it's failing democracy and it's failing the court. So and you can duck this question if you want. By the way, that's a great explanation. And I've asked that question to a lot of reporters and that's as good an explanation as I've ever heard or better. Um, so why do you think The New York Times, The Washington Post? The Wall Street Journal. And by the way, the Wall Street Journal Supreme Court reporter, I don't even think he has a freaking law degree. I mean, he's terrible. Um, but I don't mind saying that on air. Um, but um, why do you think they have a different view on it? Because they do. I mean, I, I think their view is their view is the justices explain their decisions. So we go by that. We go by what they say they, they want. I mean, it is a little bit different because members of Congress, um, they don't really explain why they do what they do. I mean, there's occasional forewords to to statutes, and there are and there are occasional speeches on the floor. But but the court does try, at least in the public's eye, to explain what it does. Um, Do they really, though? No, not in my opinion. But okay. <laughs> I mean, but serious. Like, I mean, how is a ruling specifically? I mean, think about how many rulings we've had over the past just over the past decade where. The, the literal response from lawyers that day has been, this doesn't tell us what comes next. This gives no guidance right. to the lower courts. Right. Like, so the, in a lot of ways, I mean, and that's even putting aside like shadow docket rulings that literally don't give us any reasoning most of the time. And, and, and so, so here's a, okay. So here's a question based on that. It's one that drives me crazy. Um, it's a little bit in the weeds, so I apologize to the audience and to you for this. But to get to the point, I have to get into the weeds. Yeah. It is undisputable that in a case called Northwest Austin, which is the precursor to Shelby County versus Holder, in that case, and this is and this is this is not this is simply a fact. Like I'm not this is not Eric's opinion. This is a fact. The court, in an opinion written by Thomas, says about a landmark Supreme Court case, Katzenbach versus South Carolina, that it stands for Proposition A. We don't have to get into the weeds on that. But in fact, Katzenbach said Proposition B. It said not A. It's exactly the opposite. And Roberts does that through ellipses. He misquotes the case and then reverses the holding and then uses that in Shelby County to strike down the Voting Rights Act. And... Um, I've written about this. People can go to Dorf on Law and see my blog posts on this. But my question to you is, okay, there's no law professor or if I think any professor in America who would say what Roberts did there was right. It's, it's one thing to reverse. It's one thing to overturn the Voting Rights Act. We can debate that. It's not okay to implicitly overturn a landmark case by misquoting it and using ellipses. And that's what he did. It wasn't covered at all, Chris. Nobody. I mean, Ginsburg even mentions it in dissent in Shelby County, and no right. reporter covered it of the major papers. I, I didn't know. I didn't read everyone else. Why? I mean, that's a huge deal. Why was that not covered? Well, I mean, we, we have, I mean, we don't need to go back that. I mean, we have situations in, in last term and this term where like facts are just made up. But the, but the media uh, covered that a little bit, right? Well, because, because, but I, I, and I think this is like the, the roundabout way to your answer yeah. is that coverage of the court is changing. Okay. Um, and like there, there is, I mean, and this is something that I've gotten used to over time that the, the media is an ecosystem. Like that's just a reality. And there are going to be smaller things that are doing work down down here on the ecosystem that are, are just little fish that don't necessarily like get attention like people don't come to visit um the the ocean to see those little fish they go to see the dolphins and the <laughs> whales or the big things right. but like the dolphin and whales wouldn't be there if the little fish weren't there and what happens and this is like the experience that that 
I got in a very narrow cast way coming up through covering the, the marriage cases is that a lot of reporters, I mean, first on the congressional side um, with Don't Ask, Don't Tell and the White House and, and marriage. And then as I moved more wholly into court reporting, like when I was a sort of a specialty reporter covering LGBTQ issues, like I, I was like a signal to those other reporters that like, okay, if Chris is writing about this, we should be reading this and see what what's going on. And that's what happened with marriage that, I mean, in, in, in a, a very respectful way, once I did move into the court, like a lot of those reporters, like very much credited my coverage and talked about me as an expert on, on these cases. Um, what we're seeing now is in a broad way, a lot of more people across a lot more platforms saying that what has been going on in court coverage has been a disservice. Right. And I think where you've started to see some, some extreme um, examples of that is, is within other verticals, divisions, sections of, of the newspaper in other public, in some of these biggest publications. Um, if you notice that, and, and at other big publications, I mean, like looking at this year and the Thomas stories, like very few of them have come from the Supreme Court press corps. Right. They, they've come from, uh, I mean, obviously ProPublica, um, but then they, we, even even the things that have come from the Times and the Post have come from the investigations team um, and, and from people assigned to be looking at that. And I think that that does put pressure on the, the reporters in the court um, to, to, to cover it in a different way. All that said, I do think that you can both be more aggressive. And I, I think that, of course, it's one of those like within, like I, I always think of like the Times and the Post and the AP and Reuters as like sort of like, I mean, as I won't say the Titanic because that has certain implications, <laughs> but as giant cruise liners or something <laughs> that like it, it's going to take them a while to turn. Yeah. They can't turn on a yeah. nose. Fair enough. And I think like the example of change that you do see at the times is like Adam having those news analysis columns. Yes. Which is 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 something that the Times has done more recently for it's both political reporters and Supreme Court reporters that, that I mean, and they'll put them on the front page, like they don't hide them somewhere. Yeah. They don't put them in the opinion section. And that does give a little more freedom, even within those confines that they've created, whether they're artificial and inappropriate or not, it does give some more freedom to, to dig a little deeper. Um, and I think that they're being forced to do so because of the fact that there are other people who just are going to be doing that reporting. Right. I mean, I now, like at Law.org, I now have a congressional press pass. I am at, able to be at arguments at the court. I've been there for opinion mornings a few days, uh, again, which I obviously had been before and it had a hard pass for the Supreme Court when I was at BuzzFeed. Um, and the the fact that I'm going to cover it how I cover it, uh, I think, I don't, I'm not saying that I put pressure on Adam to cover it a different way, but he's aware and all of, all of these reporters who are my friends, I've been there now with them for more than a decade of covering the court. Yeah. Um, that, that I'm going to be doing my thing. Well, I, and I, right. I, I think what you and Dolly approve, um, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on. Um, I've known Dolly a, you know, a long, long time. Um, what, what you guys have proven to me, anyway, I should make it personal, is 
obviously you come from the same leftist perspective on most issues that I do, although certainly 10 to 15 years ago, Dolly and I would have disagreed on many things about the Supreme Court. She's coming around to my point of view, as are many people, but for the wrong for the wrong reasons. Um, but my question, but my, my point here is um, you guys, um, you and Dahlia, and, and there are a few others, write entertaining, informative pieces that don't hide your perspective. So I, I could hear Eugene Volokh or, 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 or Michael McConnell or Randy Barnett listening to all this and not without cause saying, yeah, now we're investigating the court every turn because it's all conservatives doing conservative things. And when the court was liberal, the liberal media didn't do that. And there's some truth to that, I think. I don't, I don't think that's wholly dismissible. Um, but I also think the court is doing so many things so fast <laughs> that you know we're in, we're in an error. Um, but when you write about the court um, mm -hmm. on issues that you care about, a lot of the issues you and I, you know, I, I care, you know, we care that we care differently about different things, obviously. I mean, on an issue, on a con law issue that you're interested in, but doesn't resonate with you. But you still have a way of providing a personal context that makes me think I'm reading something honest. I'm not accusing other Supreme Court reporters of not being honest. What I am accusing them of being less than less than 100 percent transparent about their own views. Whereas in your case and Dahlia's case, the views are right there. And that's yeah. better. Isn't that a better way to cover it? And I don't care if you're really conservative and cover it that way. I, I mean, I I think so. I, I I mean, the thing that I've always said, um, I mean, is, I mean, and I, I do think that some of this came out of, one, me starting as a blogger. Yeah. Um, two, I, I mean, even before that, having had some time as an editorial writer. Yeah. Um, but I, I think... Also, then, when I came to D.C., being a reporter at an LGBTQ magazine, right. that I did constantly face people who were sort of like, well, you're going to be biased because, like, th this is your thing. Like, right. you're a gay reporter. Right. Um, and the thing that I always used to say is, like, that that's fine. Like, like you can be 95% sure, like even if I haven't said it explicitly in a piece, like you can be 95% sure of what my views are on a, a piece, but what, where I, like what I report, what I tell you is what I find. And if you think that I got something wrong, tell me. Like if if I have gotten something wrong, if I am misconstruing, I mean, look at last week. I mean, if I am misconstruing the history of the enforcement and interpretation of the Clean Water Act's definition of wetlands, like, please tell me. Um, what I mean, a horrible case a, that was, but that's a different podcast. I mean, it's a horrible, but I mean, like, that's a perfect example because that is not something that I've done, right. like, decades of research on. I mean, it's not like me writing something on the death penalty or on LGBTQ issues um, that... It's not even that I have like a strong opinion on those, which I do. It's that I I actually know every case that's come down right. about those right. even before I was a lawyer. Right. Like I've done all the research. I've read all of the law review articles. I know what I'm writing about and can pretty much write it in the dark <laughs> right before I fall asleep. Whereas, I mean, I spent a day on the 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 Sackett opinion. Yeah. Um, I, oh, I, hold on, Chris, one second. Sorry, just for the non-lawyers listening, and there are some. Um, last week, the court issued a very, I don't know, crazy opinion um, that basically second-guessed what the EPA is doing about what constitutes a wetland in the United States and what Congress can regulate. I don't want to get into the weeds on it. I just want to say the court, even though the media at first reported it as unanimous, it was not a unanimous opinion at all. The concurring opinions agreed with the judgment, but disagreed strongly 
with the rationale. Go ahead. I just want. Well, but I I think that it actually it like to get one one smidge deeper into the weeds, sure. uh, the wetlands, sure. so to speak. It is it is a wet area. Here. Yeah. Um, and I I think that the it's actually a perfect example of of what we're talking about. Because it, it would have been very easy, and there was initially some of that pushback uh, on, on Thursday that that I got, that some others got, because in, immediately in my first tweet about the opinion, and I would note, you can go back, and I was careful, and said that the opinion of the definition of wetland was 5-4. Right. And, and right. because there, what happened in the case was that there, there, in effect, were three possible definitions of wetland that were at issue. And basically, by the time we were done with arguments, we knew that the one definition wasn't going to happen. And there was this 5-4 fight in the court over what ended up being the majority decision and what was the dissent led by Kavanaugh. And the thing is, what's really wild when you think about it and actually spend some time with the opinions is if you go backwards through time, the thing that everybody tossed out actually came from a Rehnquist decision. <laughs> right. Interpreting well, Chris, he's a bleeding heart liberal compared to the justices today. Yeah, it was a Rehnquist decision describing a unanimous decision of the court from right. 15 years earlier. Right. And so that's where this, this what they called the significant nexus test yes. came from that the court tossed out. Yes. Um, that, like, it, it was only talked about in the opinion as this one justice opinion from Anthony Kennedy. But Kennedy had pulled it from a majority decision by the chief five years before that. Yeah. And so it's this showing of how far the court has moved to the right, that what was the chief just Rehnquist's chief justice opinion for the court became a one justice opinion that it was the one justice opinion in the middle of a decision. So it was, it wasn't controlling, but it, it sort of was. And some lower courts had thought it might be, and that's what happened. The Ninth Circuit use that because it was in the middle as they're the decision that they like control. But what happened on Thursday is that what had been the four justices to uh, Kennedy's right, three of the four of them, Thomas, Alito, and Roberts are still on the court and they now have a majority and they turned that four justice minority into a majority on Thursday. And Kavanaugh was with this other decision that actually represented the way that the EPA, the courts, the presidential administrations since 1977 had all agreed right. should be covered. Like the debate was actually on something outside of what was being debated between the majority and minority. The, the dissent was was not a dissent. <laughs> it, it, it is a dissent on today's court, but it was literally describing what has been the interpretation, what has not been in dispute right. during yeah. all of these disputes since 1977. I just want to say it's that kind of analysis um, that makes you such a great writer and why I read you whenever I can. Chris, I have a really, I want to change subjects to a really hard yeah. question. Uh, and, and, and I did not tell you I was going to ask you this, so. I apologize for that, but it, it occurred to me while you were talking. And, and I've asked other people this question, and, I've, and I don't know the answer to it, and I've yet to hear a good answer. What do we do with this fact? Because I think this is a fact. Now, this is, not, this is not, I can't say this is a fact like gravity is a fact, but it's close. Obergefell and Windsor, uh, the cases that struck down the, the Defensive Marriage Act and that require states to recognize same-sex marriage, both 5-4 decisions. Kennedy wrote both. It is my belief that we don't get those decisions. And same-sex marriage would still be illegal in, in, in many states, if not you know, 41 of them, um, were it not for the fact that Anthony Kennedy in Northern California, as a liberal Republican, had a father who was a lawyer 
who had a best friend who Kennedy considered an uncle, not by blood, but an uncle, who was uh, in the closet and gay. And Kennedy saw the indignity of that for decades. That guy eventually became dean of McGeorge Law School, still in the closet. Um, and if Justice Kennedy grows up, let's say, in Idaho instead of Sacramento and doesn't have that experience, we don't get 5-4 opinions in those cases. And we don't get same-sex marriage in America. And nothing I just said has anything to do with law. <laughs> and I, and I, in my own head, I, I mean, we're, we're one Justice Kennedy uncle away from still not recognizing same-sex marriage as a constitutional right. What do we do with that? Like, what do we do? Or, or to give other examples, Justice Roberts hated the Voting Rights Act in 1981 when he was a young lawyer at Department of Justice, and he eventually got it done. He eventually destroyed the law he wanted to destroy. Justice Alito hates unions. Justice Thurgood Marshall was a huge civil rights proponent. Justice Ginsburg, a huge proponent of you know, women's rights. Um, they all have their things, and they're all separate from law. <laughs> but the other ones are less cl- or more cloudy than the same-sex marriage example, which is without Kennedy, that doesn't happen. And without Kennedy's experiences, I don't believe he votes the way he votes. What do we do with that? Well, I, I mean, I don't know that that's really a question. Um, I mean, are, are are we talking about like, I mean, that's both everything that we've been talking about, which is that we should be treating these justices like people mm-hmm. and that, that, um, and, and not just like rulers from above and that who they are matters. Um, and I, I do think that there is, um, there, there was a period where Democrats were afraid of, of, of saying that reality because they were, were so afraid of the idea that like the power of like a colorblind America, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I think that, that that led to, a, a lot of efforts to talk about diversity in very weird ways. <laughs> um, but the, the, I, I do think that, um, I mean, and I, I think it's led us to where we, we are today with, with the Republicans having um, white nationalism as a driving force of many of their leaders. Um, I, I think that the, the Obama presidency and the, not just the Obama presidency as in a black president, but the Obama administration uh, were aggressively okay with talking about who people are and what their experiences are matters to what you do as an adult. <laughs> which, she, which, by the way, should be obvious to everybody. Well, yeah. And um, I think that the Biden administration, like, obviously that sort of, like, took this downward spiral under the Trump administration. But only sort of, like, the funny thing was, the, the reality and the power of it was still there, obviously. Because who replaced Justice Ginsburg? Right. A woman. A woman. Right. Like Donald J. Trump knew that there was no way that he would be able to do what they were going to do. And even Mitch McConnell knew that there was no way that they were going to do what they were doing to put this through right before the presidential change or election at least, if they didn't replace Justice Ginsburg with a woman. Yep, I agree, and, 100%. I mean, and we also know that the the reason why uh, Judge Thapar probably wasn't one of the earlier picks was that he's in the wings if Justice Thomas leaves the court right. under a Republican president. And speaking of Justice Thomas, we are running out of time, so I want to do a lightning round with you, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, Thomas's personal issues here, uh, are they the worst you've seen covering the court of any justice? 
I, I mean, of ones that I've seen, yeah. yes. Yeah. I wasn't around for yeah. For, yeah. for Nixon's appointees. Right. I wasn't around for that right. that era. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, th- this is this is absurd. It they. I mean, actually, I think the most disappointing thing right now is the failure of Democrats in the Senate and even in the House and elsewhere uh, to to treat this as the the matter it is. And it's astounding to me that we do not have a significant number of Democrats calling on Thomas to resign. It is. It, it's, it's crazy. It, it's wild to me that that is not what's happening. If nothing else, just as a political, like, challenge right. to the court. Like, I, I don't under, like, I do have a political background. I do have time in politics. And it, it's absolutely like a, a failure of imagination for the fact that, like, fine, like, we can put aside Dems on the Senate Judiciary Committee, like, whatever, they they want to say that they're, like, being careful and, right. and whatever, like, it doesn't need to be them, but you've got 80, what, 88 other, other Dems in the Senate, you've got 215 Dems in the House, like, why are there not people out every opinion warning in front of the court saying that he shouldn't be casting a vote. That's a gr- I, I, love, I love that question. And maybe, I wonder what you think about this. Maybe part of it is there's so much information coming all the time. But Chris, I want to focus on one narrow thing about Justice Thomas, because there's so much there. I've written a lot about this, but but one narrow thing. So it's, and this will be right up your alley. So it's 2000 and it's December, uh, late November, December. And Florida's up in the air. We don't know what's going to happen. Whoever wins Florida wins the election. There are clearly weird things happening in in, in, in Miami-Dade, where for some somehow Pat Buchanan got like a lot of votes that no Jewish person would ever vote for him. So he was right. very very vocal at the time, anti-Semitically. So I mean, um, but but here's my question. So it's it's it, the. the Bush versus Gore is in the Florida Supreme Court. It's in the 11th Circuit, and it's going back and forth to the Supreme Court. At that very moment, that very second, Ginny Thomas is collecting resumes from Heritage to staff the upcoming Bush administration, which hasn't been elected yet. (laughs) And for Justice Thomas to hear Bush versus Gore, while his wife is basically working to get people money to work for the Bush administration and being paid to do that. So my view has always been, and I wrote this about the Affordable Care Act, that most of the time justices should not recuse because of their spouses' activities, because we want spouses to work, especially women. That's how it plays out. Um, But in that case, her financial future was helped by George Bush winning. How can a husband hear a case when your wife's financial future is affected by the case. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, it is, I mean, like, like fast forward to 2020 and you've got the same thing, the same questions um, around the same Person. couple. Yes. Um, and I I do think that the, the statutory restrictions um, on what a, when a justice shall, when a judge or justice shall recuse, uh, are, are very arguably met in, in yes. that case because she, she has a financial interest yeah. okay. in the outcome of the case. Do you think um, Thomas will, I mean, he'll never resign under a Democrat president. We know that for a fact. No, um, no. Do you think, do you think he'll go if, if the Republicans win in 2004? I mean, 24? Um, I, I, I was actually, I, I had, uh, gamed out all sorts of wild things <laughs> that I thought Thomas would do at the end of, <laughs> of 2020, actually. Right. Um, I'm actually surprised that, that he didn't, uh, that the lame duck didn't deal with Thomas so, in 2020. So here's the question. And this is the last thing I'll ask you about Thomas. And you know, no more about this than I do or anybody else does, but I just a human guess. 
were he to announce his resignation tomorrow, or, or let's say he got very, you know, whatever, whatever reason, you think Harlan Crow still puts him on the private plane? At this point, yes. I do think that, that like, that they, they, well, I mean, like, yes, because all, I mean, aside from everything else, like, they've won. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, and, right. and Thomas is writing majority opinions after having written one or two justice dissents right. that then became three justice dissents once Gorsuch joined them. Right. I mean, like, th this is... This this is he was a thirty year investment that is has matured. Okay, that's a good. I love the way you talk. That's that's exactly right. Okay, um, uh, you know, um, uh, quick questions. Should the courts oral arguments and decision announcements be live streamed visually? Oh, thank you. <laughs> you giving me a little softball to. Well, you know, this is my thing. Stuff. So you you take you take it and you run with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I've been, I've been writing at Law Dork. Um, I mean, I think one of the, the, um, just such a, a great crystallization of both the way the court sees itself and its failure to see how it's being seen is the decision this term to return to in-person decision announcements and to decide not to live stream right. those decisions. How stupid is that? Jesus. Which they are live streaming arguments, so we know they have the capability. There um, is absolutely no reason why they shouldn't be because they are recorded. Um, what happens is the court never makes them available. They turn them over to the Library of Congress or the National Archives over the summer, and they're available from the National Archives starting the start of the next term. Um, a few years back, the year of uh, the Trump travel ban arguments, um, uh, Nina and I put together a letter um, that got signed by by sort of a, a bipartisan group yeah. of, of yeah. Supreme Court reporters. Shannon Bream from Fox News was on it. Um, uh, I think either Adam and or Robert were both on it from the Times and the Post um, asking for not even for live stream of the audio announcements of Trump, but just for early release for the court to release it so that reporters would be able to. to Which use Canada it. does, by the way, Canada does. That. And that was that was denied. That was denied even when the press asked for a one-off time in a key case. Right. Um, so, I mean, and, it, yeah, and you remember, you've been around long enough to remember that, that like, we used to only get the uh, transcript at the end of the week. Yeah. And yeah. we had to ask for, the press had to ask for early release of transcripts. Right. Um, we had to ask for audio early. Um, so like things have moved, but it was very, it, it was very interesting to me that, um, I think a sign of how precarious Roberts does realize the court's legitimacy is at right now, that despite the fact that they are live streaming arguments every, every week, they, uh, declined and refused to live stream opinion announcements. And you're just talking is what we care about. And you're just talking live streaming audio. I'm, you know, again. Right. I, yeah. I mean, we should have video like blah, blah, blah. Like yeah. that's the point is like, that's how low the bar is. Yeah. And they're still not even to, to get over that bar. Chris, if you'll bear with me for a second, I, I want to um, show how important what you just said is. I mean, I think it speaks for itself. Um, but but going back to Obergefell, I believe it was. Um, that was on. A, I believe that was on either a Thursday or you'll you'll know. Was it a Thursday or Friday? I think it was Friday. I think it was Friday. And that Monday, there was a big announcement in an Arizona immigration case. And there's a lot mm -hmm. of very interesting things about that Arizona big 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 immigration case. Uh, I'm just going to mention two. One relevant to your point. One not. The one not relevant to your point is Kagan had recused herself in that immigration case, which is yet another reason why she should have recused herself in, in um, the Obamacare case. Because, But that's a different podcast for a different day. But, but what's important about it is Dahlia Lithwick reported in Slate 
that Tuesday or Wednesday after that Monday, that at that, that decision announcement, which no one saw and no one heard except the reporters in the courtroom, Scalia went crazy and started mm-hmm. talking about Obergefell, I think it was, during the immigration announcement of the Arizona case. And to everyone in the courtroom, he looked kind of sick. Like he looked kind of different than Scalia normally looks when he gets, we've all seen him angry. We've all seen him mad in person. It wasn't that. It was something different than that. The fact that the only, and as far as I know, to this day, the only reporter who covered that was Dahlia on that day. Um, And it's a big deal when a Supreme Court justice acts badly like he did that day. That's why we need to see it, right? Well, I I mean, sure, but I, I actually think the court would say that you're making the case for why not. Go ahead. Um, Go ahead. That that they they would say like that's one off. That doesn't matter. That's not. The, it wasn't the, a one off though. It's who he was. Stop. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> that, that that that's not the. That wasn't the opinion. That wasn't that wasn't the law. That's not what what matters. Like that. That's what they would actually say. Why it doesn't matter. Right. Um. I think. That the, the that like one the the response to that is well tough tough yes tough tough toenails you, you do it you're stuck with it yeah. um, but I I argue actually like because I'm aware of the low bar uh, because I'm aware of how skittish they are like I actually argue like not about that I argue about the substance yeah. like this is. The moment when justices choose what part, they don't read the whole decision. This is where they choose to summarize what they crafted into this majority and how they are deciding to explain it. And then obviously there are the moments when justices and any of the nine can choose in any case that they're dissenting to read from their dissent. And that also tells us something about how that justice views the case. And they're not making things up. They're not just speaking. They are giving their dissenting opinion, their summary of their dissent. And I think that that matters. And I think that that helps illuminate what the court is doing. And I think that that would help make the court's decisions more accessible to people who can't read a 75 page decision that has four different con combinations of justices. Um, But them speaking for three minutes uh, is something that, could then be used more readily by journalists, especially now with with how quickly things are available on the internet and the fact that the New York Times has their whole big multimedia team that could put like a, a piece together where it's like, here's what like John Roberts said, and this is the part annotated to the part of the decision that this relates to. And this is where the effect of that will most likely be seen. But like instead we can't yeah. and, and we're, we're stuck just with the dry text of the opinion until the next August. So it's effectively just good for documentarians and historians. Right. And to be fair to Scalia and the justices, uh, another example, again, which I think suggests television is really important or at least live streaming visually. Um, during one of the um, Texas affirmative action cases, Scalia said something horrific, like he always did, but he said something about blacks don't belong at the University of Texas. And anyway, or he said, I won't lose sleep over the fact, or I'm not bothered by the fact that if we end affirmative action, there won't be a lot of blacks at the University of Texas. The way, the actual written quote is terrible and awful and very reflective of Scalia. But I'm told by people in the courtroom that day that the way he asked it was very different than his normal bombastic tone and that if we could have seen him, it's still bad. I'm not whitewashing it. But if we had seen him ask it, we'd have a slightly different impression than just reading it on a cold piece of paper. And I think that happens all the time. And and I think... Well, and that was before live streaming yes. audio. Yes. So the only people who yes. heard it... Yes. And that, that was a day where there was a distinction between the way that... that, that we came out of arguments and when the transcript was released that afternoon, people just reading it were like, Oh my God, I can't believe that. And we were like, 
oh, it was more of a like sarcastic. Yeah. Like, he clearly wasn't saying he didn't care about that. Well, I know about this and um, you know about this because. I, I, I mean, where we saw it, I mean, to go it in the other direction, like imagine, I mean, think, think of how um, notable and how much attention Justice Jackson got for her questions right. about right. the ability of black applicants to college to even be able to talk about that and why that's important to them, why that matters to their family. Right. Um, it, it, in the, the arguments this past fall, imagine had we had video of that, how different, how much more uh, that, that would have uh, had a place in the public understanding. Like, it, it it's like the live streaming gets it to a point that like people who know who Dahlia Lithwick is <laughs> can under can can care about it. Right. Like it, it it is like she's a big name, so a lot of people know her. Right. But like it's still like a, an audience yes. that's going to listen to that. Yeah. Whereas if the video was actually there and able to be on the nightly news, then everybody would know. And one if it was able right. to be right. used by John Oliver. Right. And the icing on, he once used one of my clips, one of the happiest moments of my life um, yeah. on life tenure. Um, and, and then just to put a, an, an icing on the cake on this, what I wrote in 2000, uh, I don't know, 60, whenever it was, um, when, when, when after Obergefell came out, what I wrote, because I, I, I had the women who married my wife and I, when they married us in Georgia in 2007, could not get married in Georgia. They could perform, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching right. the choir here, but they, they they could perform weddings in Georgia, but they couldn't actually get married, in, you know, which was crazy. When Obergefell came out, I wrote a lot about how, although it was a great moment for those of us who fought for same-sex marriage, and although it was a great American moment, in my opinion, for civil liberties and all that stuff, if we could have seen it as a country, it would have been like the opposite of the, of the I forget the name of the, of the, spaceship that crashed or Kennedy's I my first memory of life is Kennedy's assassination I was five whatever we have all these negative memories of life you know um it would be such a positive memory of, of all these people celebrating and seeing Justice Kennedy read a little bit of the opinion would have just been amazing it would have been a civics moment right well yeah and that I mean that's like part of the the sort of like the lowest common denominator answer to why yeah it's like unacceptable yes. that the court does not yes. like does not use the 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 uh technology <laughs> available to us that's been available to us yes. for decades and decades yes. and decades yes. is that like they work for us like they they, they are our they don't, Supreme Chris, they don't see it that way so no i know i know they don't yeah. and that but that that is like and that's why things like I mean, the fact is that a lot of the senators clearly don't see it that way either, or they would be calling on it's, Thomas to resign. It's it's insane. It, it really is a, a situation where it, I mean, I think I, I wrote at MSNBC about this in February when I wrote about like, we need to start treating the court differently. Um, it, it is this idea that like, that, that, it does take a, a, a an entire paradigm shift. It, it is a change in how reporters need to cover it. It's a change in how the the other elected the elected officials need to treat it. It's a change in how Americans need to view it. They they are they are learned people. They have a special skill. <laughs> And they are given a job to do for us, which is to decide how these laws that are passed by the other two branches fit in our constitutional order or don't. <laughs> and, and, and that's it. That is a political job at the end of the day. I, I, and, and it needs to be covered like that. And they need to be treated like that. Last week, um, I mean, anyone listening to this podcast already knows what I'm about to say in terms of my views on this. But last week, 
in the Wisconsin, uh, two weeks ago in the Wisconsin Law Review, I wrote a piece that said, to reform the court, we first have to understand it isn't one. Now, I'm not going to ask you whether you agree with that or not, but I, I will say I've been trying, I've been working towards that paradigm shift for a long time. Courts of law take prior law minimally seriously. I do not believe the Supreme Court institution in 1803, 1857, 1930, or today takes prior law minimally seriously enough. That's the paradigm shift I would like to see. You probably want different paradigm shifts, but what we both agree on, I think, is there has to be a paradigm shift, and it has to happen soon. I mean, I I think that if if we want to... If I mean, and what I've said is that this is also about protecting the court's legitimacy. Yeah. Like I, I've said, it's about protecting the court from itself. Yeah. Um, it is out of control. It does not understand the limits that are going to result from their behavior. Excellent. Um, yeah. And, and that 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 is just a reality because. I mean, just look at what we've seen from Dobbs. Yep. Yep. Um, I mean, you you've got you've got conservative Supreme Courts out in the Plains states <laughs> finding a constitutional right to an abortion, sometimes a very limited constitutional right, but but still basically being like, what did they do? Right. <laughs> because right. this this does not make democracy more workable. Chris. And it certainly doesn't for us, even even out here. I, I think um, I think that's a great way to end it. I can't think of a better way to end it. You, you have a great way with words. Um, everybody should subscribe to Law Dork. Um, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I, you know, I say that selfishly because I think you are one of the best Supreme Court reporters at reporting both what the court said accurately, which is your primary job, I think, and then how that fits into life in general. And that's really super important. And for people who are interested in that, I don't think they can do better than your newsletter and, and following you on Twitter. Um, so thank you so much for doing this. I've learned a lot in this hour and five well, minutes. And I really Thanks a lot. It. it was fun. Glad thank, we got to do it. Thank you, Chris.